3: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Hey everybody, Tracy here with news about some live appearances we have coming up. Saturday, July 7th, I will be at History Camp Boston, where I will be part of the History Podcaster Panel. And then the next day, Sunday, July 8th at 2 p.m., Holly and I both will be doing a live podcast at Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts, where our show will be John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams Abroad. This is an outdoor show, and it will happen rain or shine. And we're coming back to convention days in Seneca Falls, New York. Our show is at 4 p.m. on Saturday, July 21st in the historic Wesleyan Chapel. You can get more information about all of these shows with links to buy tickets where applicable at mistinhistory.com. Click on live shows in the menu. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from
1: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I have been kind of working through my list, as you may have noted. We,
0: I think we've <laughs> both been doing some of that lately.
1: Yeah, uh, this is another episode that has been on my list for a very long time. And originally, I thought I might use it as one of our October Halloween programming episodes. But I changed my mind, and I will explain why I changed my mind at the end of this episode, Uh, we are talking today about the film director, James Whale, who created such iconic imagery in the early half of the 20th century, particularly the very early part of the 20th century, that images of the characters from his films are still found everywhere. He is one of the main reasons that Universal Pictures became synonymous with the horror genre. But his interests as a creator were far wider than simply making gothic spook stories.
0: Uh, if you've seen the movie Gods and Monsters with Sir Ian McKellen which in my mind is a recent movie but in reality came out 20 years ago uh, you'll you'll already know some things about the end of his life which do include him taking his own life so if that's a a troubling spot for you then just be aware yeah uh, also
1: just a heads up we don't really talk about that particularly particular film it is based on his life but it is a fictionalized biopic
0: there there are entire people that didn't exist in the real world
1: correct that were made up as as um story devices to kind of talk about different parts of his life. Right. But uh, it's a wonderful film, and I highly recommend it. I think Brandon Fraser is amazing in it, as well as Sir Ian McKellen. But uh, it's definitely not one you walk away from going, I learned so much about James Whale, because you, those may not be correct facts. No,
0: that came out, I think, during a time when I was working a kind of a weird schedule, and I saw it in the daytime, midweek, and I was in a theater alone, and I left just feeling very devastated.
1: Oh, that sounds perfect. It kind of was. But, you know, I'm like a wallower.
0: Like, I like a good, dour
1: scenario to watch kind of a dark film. So, to me, that sounds perfect. But yeah.
0: So, to get to his actual life story, he was born on July 22nd, 1889. Large, working-class family in Dudley, Worcestershire, in the UK. His father, William, worked at a blast furnace. And his mother, Sarah Peterswale, came from a mining family. The number of siblings that he had varies depending on the source. The documentation wasn't very good. He did have some siblings for sure though, and the family lived in a small four-room flat.
1: Yeah, we there are six documented. There are, may have been additional siblings, we don't know. Uh James initially attended school at the Dudley Bluecoat School, but he didn't complete his education there. The family needed income, so young James, like his two older brothers before him, started working at an early age to contribute. He worked as a cobbler and a sign letterer, and he squirreled away a little bit of money here and there to pay for night classes at the Dudley School of Arts. He eventually switched to a labor job working in sheet metal, despite being poorly suited for physical work, because it paid better and it offered more hope that he would actually be able to pay for a complete education. In
0: 1914, James Whale was swept up into World War I, and at first, he just did not have any interest in enlisting. Instead, he volunteered at the YMCA, which offered a lot of support services to the military, In October of 1915, though, he finally did enlist. He was convinced that a draft was coming anyway.
1: Yeah, there was definitely some animosity uh, towards young men who went the route he did where he opted to do this volunteer work instead. So that may have also played a part that he was getting a lot of social pressure. He went through officer training and he became part of the Worcestershire Regiment in 1916. In 1917, Wales was involved in the Flanders campaign when he was taken prisoner and he was moved to Holzminden in Germany. The next 15 months, basically the remainder of the war, were spent as a POW. But Wales put his creativity to use during that time. He actually staged plays for the camp in which both captors and prisoners were the audience. And he did a great deal of drawing. Early on in his imprisonment, a group of 25 of his fellow Brits mounted an escape from Holzminden, but Whale was too timid to join them.
0: Whale's theatrical efforts didn't end when the war did. When he went back to England, he pursued a full-time stage career. This was a decision he came to based on his experience at the camp where he fell in love with the stage despite the unusual circumstances that he was performing in.
1: Immediately after the war, Wales also sold a couple of cartoons for publication he had continued drawing. But despite that seemingly auspicious start, he didn't get any further than that with his cartoons. He decided to move from the increasingly costly London to Birmingham, and he started working for the Birmingham Repertory Company. Although he was working for the theater without pay for a while before he was hired on as more than a volunteer. And as his theatrical career progressed, he worked with a number of people who would later become quite famous, for example, Noel Coward, Elsa Lanchester of course, who his his story gets tied to quite closely, and John Gielgud among others. And it was during this time that he also met costume and set designer Doris Zankison.
0: Doris was dramatic and artistic and James, who she called Whalebone, found her just fascinating. The two of them became engaged in 1923, and they became the it couple in the art scene. They tangoed, they went to clubs, they seemed to complement each other just perfectly, but they broke up in 1925. This was really the last time that Whale would appear to be a straight man, but he spoke really highly and lovingly of Doris for the rest of his life. As for Doris, she went on to marry an executive at Johnny Walker Whiskey not long after they split up.
1: Yeah, in interviews with people who knew him for the rest of his life, they all talked like, I really do think he was in love with her in some way, even though they also acknowledged that they believed that he knew at that point that he was not a straight man, but he just had this deep affinity that carried on pretty much for the rest of his life for her. James Whale was also pretty unique in the time and place that he lived in that he was living fairly openly as a gay man in the 1920s. Uh, Most of his colleagues knew that this was the case. It was kind of one of those things that was not spoken about a lot, but was common knowledge, and he did nothing to dissuade anyone from thinking it. And this is interesting because you may recall from previous episodes of this podcast that homosexuality was illegal in England until 1967.
0: Yeah, everybody, it, people describe it from the industry at the time as sort of like an open secret where, like, they they weren't running around yelling about it, but everyone knew. Yeah. Uh, acting had really drawn Whale to the stage, but he also worked in other roles, including in stage management. But it was as a director that he truly made a name for himself. On June 12th, 1923, a one-act play called Father Noah opened at the Strand Theater. This was Wales' directorial debut. Father Noah didn't get a lot of attention or accolades, but it was the first step in some more leadership roles within the theater.
1: And then in 1925, he joined the Oxford Players, which was a small, underfunded company, The nature of the group meant that Whale once again worked in a variety of roles on any given production. Acting, set design, and assistant directing all landed on his plate.
0: As a theatrical director, Whale got a lot of accolades when he staged a play called Journey's End in 1928. The play depicted a British infantry dugout during World War I over the course of four days while they awaited a German attack, The original star of the play was 21-year-old Laurence Olivier, although when the production became so successful that they had to move on to a bigger venue, another actor stepped into the role.
1: The following year, the critically acclaimed play moved across the Atlantic for a Broadway run, and that New York engagement actually proved pivotal in James Whale's career.
0: In the late 1920s, something big was happening in the film industry. That was talkies. Actors couldn't rely just on their physical characterizations to carry a motion picture. There was a very real need in Hollywood for coaches who could help the stars of silent films make the transition to talkies.
1: And it was in that capacity that James Whale made his way to Los Angeles from New York. Whale worked as a dialogue director for Paramount Pictures, and then he was hired onto the high-profile 1930 film Hell's Angels, starring Gene Harlow. The actress was still quite green and uncertain of herself at the time. And in a scene in which she was supposed to seduce one of her male co-stars, she asked Whale for instruction on exactly what to do, to which he replied, quote, "'My dear girl, I can tell you how to be an actress, but I cannot tell you how to be a woman.'"
0: But starting a film career was not the only thing that significantly changed for Whale while working in Hollywood. He also met a story assistant named David Lewis. At the time, Whale was 41 and Lewis was 25, and the younger man was not really impressed by the Englishman. Whale found Lewis captivating, though, and over time, the two men struck up a friendship, which became a romantic relationship. Whale and Lewis spent the next two decades together as a couple. And we're going to get into James
1: Whale's career as a film director in just a moment, Uh, but first we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. privileges and start earning points toward your next day find a stay for any you book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true
3: happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride in the queer community all year
1: we were just talking about 1930 before we cut to break and whale also directed his first feature film in 1930 that was the adaptation of his successful stage play journey's end it starred colin clive that was the actor who had replaced olivier on the london stage and who collaborated with james whale many more times throughout his career After Journey's End made its successful transition to the screen, James Whale was signed to a contract at Universal Studios by studio head Carl Lemley Jr.
0: Whale's first assignment under this new contract was Waterloo Bridge, which was another adaptation of a stage play. Like Journey's End, this film was set during World War I. It focuses on a young American woman in London during the conflict who has to turn to sex work to make money. Her life becomes entwined with a convalescent soldier from the Canadian Army, and then the plot centers around the people in the young woman's life who see this young man as a potential savior for her. Wales' adaptation came out in 1931. Two remakes of it came out in 1940 and 1956, although the latter version is a lot different and is titled Gabby.
1: Whale had pleased the studio with his production. He had stayed on schedule. He had stayed on budget. And though the film's subject matter met with some controversy and had to be edited in some markets, it was successful enough that the director was given his pick of projects for his third film.
0: And that's how, in 1931, Whale directed what would become one of his most famous films of all time. Frankenstein. Another adaptation, obviously, the screenplay was based on Mary Shelley's novella, and the appeal of the Frankenstein story for Whale was really simple. He just didn't feel like making another war movie.
1: That st- strikes me as ironic uh, for reasons that will become clear as we go forward. Part of what made this picture so unique is the fact that Whale wasn't a horror director, even though as a genre that was still kind of congealing. But he told the story of the Doctor driven by his obsession and the monster that he created as though it were a straight drama. And audiences loved it. It made Boris Karloff famous, and it really put horror on the map as a respectable and commercially viable genre. And it also gave James Whale a great deal of power at Universal Studios.
0: While executives at the studio wanted Whale to repeat his Frankenstein success, he decided to make a film called The Impatient Maiden next. This is about a young woman and a doctor who meet, fall for each other, decide not to pursue a relationship, and are later pushed together when the doctor has to perform an emergency appendectomy on her. (laughs) I I feel like I've seen this episode of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like,
1: there are so many of James Whale's uh, films that I feel like set up
0: tropes that
1: happened forever (laughs) after that. And they weren't by any means the first ones, but in a lot of cases, he made those types of stories really famous.
0: Now that I think about it more, I think it really was an actual episode of Doogie (laughs) Howser MD where he has to operate (laughs) on his girlfriend. Anyway, Whale had chosen The Impatient Maiden as a project because he didn't want to be pigeonholed in horror. But it turned out to have been a poor choice. This romance drama fared really poorly with both critics and audiences.
1: In 1932, Whale made a film called The Old Dark House, which was sort of a horror comedy. I love this movie, and I watched it while I was working on the the outline for this. It starred Boris Karloff, Gloria Stewart, Charles Lawton and Melvin Douglas. And it is now also a classic horror trope. A group of people traveling in the countryside uh, when they get caught in a terrible storm that makes it impossible to continue their journey. And they seek shelter in a creepy house with eccentric inhabitants, and things play out from there.
0: Whale made two films that released in 1933. The first was The Kiss Before the Mirror. This was a mystery about a lawyer and his possibly adulterous wife and a trial in which the lawyer is defending a man who murdered his own cheating spouse. This was not a blockbuster.
1: But Whale's second film of 1933 had quite the opposite reception. When The Invisible Man hit theaters, it amazed audiences and delighted critics with its special effects work. Claude Rains, in the starring role, gave a memorable vocal performance, and the film became one of the year's biggest hits.
0: There's obviously a pattern that was developing in James Whale's career, where his most popular films were in this newly popular horror genre, But rather than make another horror film after The Invisible Man, he turned his efforts instead to a rom-com called By Candlelight. It was adapted from a stage play by Austrian writers Siegfried Geier and Karl Farkas, and it involved a case of mistaken identity. A gentleman's butler falls in love with somebody who mistakes him for the gentleman that he works for. This was considered to be a light, light, fair, not particularly serious, nothing special.
1: Yeah, uh, and again, it, it... It did okay, not great. Uh, Whale still, though, opted out of making another horror film, even though that probably would have been an easy way for him to say, look, I made another hit. Instead, he turned to serious drama with an adaptation of a novel by John Galsworthy titled One More River. This film features the story of a married English couple who look perfect to outsiders, but then it's quickly revealed to the audience that in private, the husband is physically and emotionally abusive to his wife, who leaves him, only to have him threaten her with a smear campaign of adultery despite no wrongdoing on her part. This film was critically acclaimed, and people who saw it thought it was quite amazing, but not many people actually wanted to see it, and it flopped at the box office.
0: Maybe because of that series of lukewarm non-horror projects, Whale finally decided to do what Universal and the public had been asking him to do for years, which was return to horror and make a sequel to Frankenstein. While treatments had been proposed for a Frankenstein follow-up, it was Whale who finally decided that a love interest provided the most appealing possibility.
1: So Whale's work on The Bride of Frankenstein* was lighter in tone than his previous work. He was more at play as a director, and the look of the film, thanks to cinematographer John J. Mescom, was based in the paintings of Rembrandt, contrasting bright, highlighted sections of any given frame with the deepest of shadows to create depth and drama.
0: Whale decided on his friend Elsa Lanchester for the role, then carefully designed The Bride's look, inspired by the mummies of Egypt, Her iconic hair was modeled on the headpieces of Nefertiti, and her makeup was carefully sketched out by the director in a series of drawings. Lanchester brought a unique inspiration to the role. The bride's behavior and movement was based on the swans at Hyde Park. Yeah, I uh, had only read
1: that recently. I'm sure I've probably passed over it before, but the idea of the way she hisses and, like, turns her head roughly <laughs> was based on these swans that she had, had been observing. There's also an interesting story where he was already something like 10 days or two weeks into production before he cast her. They were like, we can't figure out who the actress is, but we'll just start shooting and we'll figure it out, which to me sounds terrifying, but James Whale seemed to have it all in hand. Uh, We talked a lot about The Bride of Frankenstein, of course, in our two-parter that we did about Elsa Lanchester a couple years ago, but we didn't at that time really discuss how the film impacted James Whale's life and career. In terms of commercial success, the film was an unqualified success. There was no way you could frame it where it was not a huge hit.
0: After Whale's Bride had terrified and charmed audiences and made a lot of money in the process, Whale was given more or less free reign to work on whatever projects he wanted to at Universal. This was a unique situation. Only a very few directors at the time had this level of creative freedom that James Whale had earned. And
1: next up, we're going to delve into what his life was like after The Bride. But first, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. privileges and start earning points toward your next day find a stay for any you book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true
3: happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop
1: James Whale was getting pressure to make another horror film. Immediately after The Bride of Frankenstein, he opted to direct a comedic murder mystery called Remember Last Night. And this takes place in the aftermath of a drunken party, during which there was a murder, which none of the attendees, who all got blackout drunk, could recall. A hypnotist is summoned to help recover the partygoer's memories, but then additional murders take place, deepening the whole mystery and sending everything into disarray. Remember Last Night was a money pit. Universal took a hit on it because ticket sales were so dismal, they ended up deep in the red on that one.
0: Whale needed a successful film, and his next picture was just that. It wasn't horror, but instead it was a musical. He adapted the stage play Showboat into a huge, lavish production that once again pleased the studio by making a nice profit.
1: Yeah, but because of Showboat, the studio actually changed significantly made a nice profit, but not for the people that originally started the project. So when the Lemleys put the studio in a financially precarious position, they were actually pushed out in 1936. They had been willing to take risks, both creatively and financially. But even though Carl Lemley Sr. had founded Universal, a loan that he had taken out to complete the over-budget showboat ended up doing him in. Before the picture, which turned a very nice profit, was even released... Standard Capital, which had issued the loan, seized control of Universal. Financier John Cheever Cowden became president and chairman of the studio. And despite just having made a massively successful film, James Whale suddenly found himself on a tight leash. No more freedom to do as he pleased creatively.
0: Almost immediately, the sting of being overseen by leadership that was a lot more worried about money than artistry really hit Whale. In 1937, he directed a film adaptation called The Road Back, which was based on a novel. And the film was critical of the Nazi regime. The German government threatened to boycott all universal pictures if the film wasn't edited significantly to remove all the anti-Nazi sentiment. Under the Lemleys, Whale might have had more leverage to keep his movie as he had made it, but Cowden feared the loss of the profit from the German market, He had a second director come in and reshoot entire sections of the film. Significant editing was done on the portions that Whale had shot.
1: I feel like that's one of those things that in retrospect, everybody probably felt really stupid for having done. But that's just me. I don't know. Uh, During 1937 and 1938, Whale directed several small pictures, including a remake of The Kiss Before the Mirror titled Wives Under Suspicion. But none of those films were really successes. He had been kind of alienated at Universal, so he made several movies as a freelance director with other studios. In
0: 1939, he made The Man in the Iron Mask, which was one of his strongest efforts of the last several feature films. The score was nominated for an Oscar, and it was also Peter Cushing's first film. Reviews were mixed, but it was ultimately a successful commercial offering.
1: His last two feature films, Green Hell and They Dare Not Love, were released in 1940 and 1941. Green Hell starred Douglas Fairbanks in a jungle adventure in South America, was incredibly expensive to make, and was such a flop that the studio reused the lavish sets just to try to recoup some of their losses in the overhead. They Dare Not Love was another war picture, this time about a prince of Austria forced to flee to London when the Nazis took over his country. A second director, Charles Vidor, also worked on that film, allegedly because Whale had gotten sick with the flu, but there were a lot of rumors that there were actually on-set conflicts with the director that led to that change.
0: After They Dare Not Love, Whale stepped away from work for a while. He decided to return to his roots as an artist, and he set up a studio in his home. He occasionally picked up small directing jobs, but for the most part, he spent the 1940s in semi retirement. In 1952,
1: Whale returned to England. He was directing a play there, a farce titled Pagan in the Parlor. He had asked his longtime partner, David Lewis, to go with him as he planned to extend the trip into a European tour. But David, who had been dealing with his own professional challenges, didn't feel like he could take an extended leave. So James went alone.
0: After spending several weeks in London seeing to the production, Whale moved on to Paris, where he didn't know very many people. But one night, he met a young man from Strasbourg named Pierre Fogel. Fogel was 25, and he started a relationship with the 63-year-old Whale. James purchased a car and hired Pierre as his chauffeur so that the two men had a pretext to travel together. When he went back to London to continue work on Pagan in the Parlor, Vogel went with him.
1: Yeah, just for clarity on how the timing of that play worked, he had gone to London, done several weeks of pre-production, gone away while things like costumes and sets were built, and then he came back when it came time to get to rehearsals. But the touring production of Pagan in the Parlor fell apart, as it became apparent that the leading lady in the show, Hermione Badley, had a serious drinking problem. During one performance, she actually stumbled onto the stage at completely the wrong time. And because her contract stipulated that she would retain the role as long as the production continued to tour, she couldn't legally be replaced. So the decision was made to shut it down completely, and James Whale returned home to Los Angeles.
0: But he had a plan to move Pierre Fogel to the United States. And when he got home, he told David everything. That he'd met a young man in a club in Paris, and that his new romance had really reinvigorated his life, and that he intended for the young man to live with them. David Lewis did not want to share his home and his beloved with a stranger imported from Paris.
1: And David ultimately decided to move out. It was an abrupt end to the relationship, but the two men stayed friends. Fogel arrived in L.A. uh, shortly after the new year, but then in 1953, he returned to Paris, and his exit catalyzed a period of true hedonism for Whale. He became infamous for hosting wild pool parties for scores of young men. But when Pierre returned to Wales' home in mid-1954, things changed almost instantly, and the retired director became almost antisocial. He had always been known, uh, even before his sort of hedonism period, for having these amazing parties and knowing really fabulous people and just having a really fun lifestyle. But at that point, he stopped hosting those famous dinner parties, and he rarely ventured out, only visiting friends occasionally. And instead, he chose to stay home and
0: paint. In 1956, Whale had a minor stroke during dinner. Pierre could see that something was off, but James seemed to recover after a few moments, and he seemed like himself again. But within a few days, it became clear that there was some damage. His coordination was off. His mood would change really abruptly. When he finally went to a doctor, because he hadn't sought care sooner, there wasn't much that could be done.
1: Yeah, Pierre had actually said, should we get a doctor? And James was like, no, I I think I'm fine. Like, it was a very minor couple of moments where he was just kind of not quite right and then felt like he recovered. Almost like what would happen in any number of, you know, passing illnesses. So they thought it was nothing. But then a second, more severe stroke followed a few months later. And this led to a hospitalization. This also became... Uh, kind of a a layered treatment situation because he was also diagnosed with depression, and to treat that, he was given shock treatments. But after he finally returned home, he hired one of the male nurses, Jay Wrigley, who had looked after him during his hospitalization as his personal nurse.
0: After this second stroke, Whale did a little design work for various productions, but he really had trouble with mood swings. He had an increasing dismay at needing to be dependent on other people. On May 29, 1957, he went about his morning routine and then he waded into the swimming pool where he dove headfirst into the water, striking his head on the bottom. His maid found him when she tried to find him for lunch.
1: James had left a note. He saw only decline in his future and he didn't want to live that way. He also added a postscript to that note that his finances were all handled and he asked those that he loved to please understand that he was choosing to not suffer any longer. Per his wishes, he was cremated, although while he had wanted to uh, have his ashes scattered, they were not. They were put in an urn and um, uh, interred in a cemetery. His will divided his estate among Pierre Fogel, Wales' surviving four siblings, and David Lewis.
0: There were a lot of rumors at the time that this happened about what had happened, because that note wasn't public for a long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there were lots of uh, uh, theories about what that could have been, what could have actually happened, and if there had been foul play. And uh, but no, and he was I I I won't say I love it, but I it was so in character for him to explain that the finances were all fine because he had, in part, probably because he had grown up so very poor always been really careful and really smart about money. Like, he lived a very fabulous life, but he always did so exactly within his means and had put away enough money that when he decided he didn't want to direct anymore for a while, that was not going to be a financial burden in any way. So it it does, when you read it, it does sort of strike me as uh, almost comedically perfectly in character for him to be like, don't worry, the finances are all taken care of. Uh, And it's so very English of him in the the way that he liked everything to be very ordered. So uh, while he's known to this day largely as a director of horror films, if you actually look at his body of work, those only make up about 20% of it. And that is why I decided to do his episode now instead of saving it for October because he didn't feel like he was a horror director. He felt like he was the director of many things. So it seemed a little more respectful to just put it during
0: the middle of uh, the middle of late spring, early summer. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, when I set up the tags for today's episode, I did tag him with those episodes because they are related. But that's just so they'll be in the same collection on our website. All the yeah. horror stuff you can find in one place.
1: Yeah, that's I mean I think for a lot of people that are film buffs that might be their entree into seeing the work of James Whale, but there are some really fun ones uh outside of it. Like they're not all good. Uh, Green Hill is not a good movie. There's <laughs> like no, there's no way to make that a good movie. Uh you could try, <laughs> but uh some of his other films really are quite interesting. He because he came from that design background, his eye for the visual was always spectacular. So the way he would set up shots was really wonderful. Uh there are some great stories about how when he first went to Hollywood as a, a dialogue coach, he was keenly aware of how the art of filmmaking was being ignored a little bit because they were so focused on capturing the audio of dialogue that they would set up coverage shots that had nothing to do with composition but just where they could put microphones and he was like there's there're better ways to do this. Uh, so so uh he's he's very interesting. Uh the one of the the books I read in preparation for this that's a biography of him is really excellent and talks a lot about his insights into film as he was coming into the business and and theater as well and he just seemed like an incredibly astute and smart person who really knew what he wanted to do on any given project, which I sort of love. I have listener mail. It is also about a director that we've already talked about. And I, I lately I've been seeming listener mail quite by accident, but I love this email. So it is from our listener, Lindsay. She writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, When you mentioned that Lotta Reiniger grew up in the Charlottenburg neighborhood in Berlin during your recent episode, I was so excited. Although I didn't know anything about Lotta Reiniger and her enchanting animation, I did know a little bit about Charlottenburg because I happened to live there. After learning about her from your well-researched podcast, I set out to find any memorials to her in my neighborhood, and I was thrilled to find a plaque on the building where she lived. The plaque reads, in English... I believe more in fairy tales than in newspapers. Uh, and then marks the birth pla- her birthplace uh, and talks about how she was the pioneer of cartoons. And then it goes on, between 1923 and 1926, she created the first long animated film of film history. It was mainly based on fairy tales and opera motifs. She designed numerous silhouettes and silhouette films. She left Germany in 1935, returned before the end of the war, and returned to Berlin and lived in England from 1949. Lindsay writes, because of your podcast, I was not only able to learn about a little known place near me, but I was also able to teach my children about Lotta Reiniger and share some of her animation that I found online. I hope her kids were captivated. I'm very curious how modern kids perceive uh, animation in that style. So if anybody wants to share those insights, please do. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for this email. What a wonderful thing to be able to walk out into your neighborhood and find Lotta Reiniger's birthplace. That sounds very cool to me. If you would like to email us, you can do so at podcast at housedevworks.com. We are also across social media as Missed in History, and that is also our website, mistinhistory.com, where we have every episode of the show that's ever existed, as well as show notes on any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on together. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit housestuffworks.com.